To be a Christian seems like an odd thing, doesn't it? I mean, for starters, we believe that eternal life comes from the bloody death of a man on a cross. We believe in angels and demons, heaven and hell. We even can believe that dead men can rise from the grave again. But going beyond beliefs, it's even more of an odd thing to live like a Christian, isn't it? And I mean to truly live as a Christian and not pretend to live your life in the fear of God, hyper aware of his presence and reality, to live in light of and for the gospel, to daily deny yourself the pleasures of sin that seem so normal and acceptable to most people out of a greater desire for holiness and obedience to God's word. I mean, from the outside looking in, it is, you know, certainly a strange life, isn't it? To live as a Christian is to swim upstream and to go against the grain. So what would compel someone to live such a strange life, such a countercultural life? What are they living for? What makes somebody live as a Christian for 40, 50, 60, maybe even 70 years and still when their hair turns gray and their hand begins to tremor, wake up in the morning, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus? Is there something at the end, at the finish line that explains everything, that makes all our suffering and all our self-denial and all the reproach of the world worth it? Or are we to be pitied because we're just spinning our religious wheels until our number is called? Well, our passage before us this morning gives us a glimpse into what the finish line and the goal of every Christian is. The answer to all these questions, what makes everything worth it. And that's this, to see God face to face in everlasting blessedness. To see God face to face in everlasting blessedness. According to the Bible, that promise is the very reason we exist. And that promise is what will keep us from one grueling trial to the next with hope unshaken that we will one day see God's face and it will all be worth it. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We'll be in verses 1 through 8. Matthew 17 verses 1 through 8. Hear the words of Holy Scripture. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter... And James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, please illumine our understanding of this text. Show us what it means, what it's for, and how our hope is grounded in it. And help me speak true things about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned earlier how this story gives us a glimpse into what awaits us after death. And that's true. But this story also gives directives on what the Christian life is to look like in the meantime. So I see three commands for us this morning in the text if we want to see God. And they all center on the person of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, here are my three points. One, look to the Son. Two, listen to the Son. And three, lean on the Son. Look, listen, and lean. So let's take the first of these. Point number one, look to the Son, verses one and two. One of the reasons I think the transfiguration can be a bit confusing or perhaps even forgotten is that it's left unexplained. Like if you're reading, the narrative's humming along, and then all of a sudden, Jesus takes three of his disciples up this high mountain. He's transfigured. God speaks. He comes down the mountain, but their discussion's not quite what you'd expect. And then the narrative just kind of goes on, and he heals another boy, and they don't explain it. So like, and we're left wondering, what are we to do with this, this trippy part of the Bible? I mean, what, what are, how are we to understand this? Well, I think if you turn back to chapter 16 for a moment, we get a clue into what it's doing here. So just for a moment, flip back in your Bibles to chapter 16. And you'll see here that Jesus and his disciples are on a long journey south to Jerusalem where he'll eventually be killed in a matter of weeks. But along the way, something momentous has happened. Look at verse 16. You see there that Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter and the disciples finally understand and confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom the prophets said would come and rescue God's people and establish the kingdom again. But Peter and his disciples they don't quite yet know what it understand they don't know what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. To be the Messiah is to suffer. And so Jesus corrects them by telling them three times, I'm going to be killed by the Jewish leaders and rise again. If the disciples thought that following the Messiah went, meant glory and riches and praise here on this earth, they are sorely mistaken. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. It's not a great marketing slogan, is it? So six days after that discussion, with these words of Jesus still fresh on their minds and ringing in their ears, he's transfigured before three of the disciples. So every text has a context, 
And when we read the transfiguration, it's placed into this context of his coming death and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so in light of chapter 16, I'm, I'm going to give you three reasons why I think Jesus is transfigured, what this text is doing. Well, first, I think he's transfigured before them to strengthen their faith so that in the coming weeks when they see him hanging on a cross, they will know that it is the Lord of glory who is crucified there. And death cannot bind the one who shines brighter than the sun. Philip's been preaching through the last words of Jesus to his disciples in the Gospel of John. This has a very similar function to comfort and strengthen the disciples before his death. Second, these three men are to be apostolic witnesses to Jesus. And their testimony is for the upbuilding and the good of the early church. St. Peter, when he's an old man, he's writing in his second epistle, and he explains this event we read. And he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And not only would they be eyewitnesses of his majesty, but they would be eyewitnesses of his humiliation at the cross and eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. And all of this enables them to be apostolic witnesses, pillars of the early church. But third, and most importantly, Jesus transfigures before them to give a greater understanding of his divine identity. He is no mere man, but God. It doesn't take a genius to know that somebody who shines brighter than the sun is not a mere mortal. Now, as we heard in the scripture reading that Art read, in the wilderness, Moses would go speak with God on the mountain, and he would come back down, and his face would be shining. It'd be like sparkling. And the people of Israel would be frightened by this. So they ask him, please put a veil over your face so that we don't have to look at you. But this is entirely different. I, I mean, no veil could conceal the amount of glory and light shining forth from Jesus' face. I'm sure the disciples would have to like shield their eyes lest they go blind. It's kind of like when you look at the sun and you see black dots on your eyelids. And this is because Jesus doesn't necessarily shine because he talked with God. He shines because he is God. The light that's shining is shining forth and emanating from himself, from the divine essence. It's not like secondhand from Moses. This is no mere man. This is God. The beginning of his existence was not when Mary became pregnant, but he, as God, existed eternally before the world even began. He has no beginning. He has no end. He simply is. He is the great I am. And the great wonder and the paradox of the gospel is that this God steps into our fallen world, into our brokenness, and takes on a body like ours. The very one who created Adam from the dust has become one of Adam's sons. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Real flesh, real blood coursing through his veins. That's what the word incarnation means. He became incarnate, infleshed. And he took on a body like ours for what purpose? To save us from our sins. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God did not send an angelic messenger or an envoy to save us. But in order to show his great love for us, he sends us his own son. In fact, the God-man is the only one who could save us. And so out of the abundance of his own life, he slays death for us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And you know what that means for you and me? It means that our grave plot is borrowed. It's a rental. (laughs) Because it means that where Jesus is, we too shall be. And what he is like, we too shall be like. He came down as far as we had fallen so that he might take us up to be with him forever. That we too might one day shine like the sun in the radiance of the true sun. And in the transfiguration, we see this great paradox of the gospel. The greatness of God and the humility of God meeting in the person of Jesus. If you're ever prone to doubt God's love for you, or are slow to come to him in repentance when you feel guilt and shame over your sin, have you considered this comforting thought? That he takes our humanity to himself, never to lay it aside again. His steadfast love and faithfulness to us is proven in that he is forever united to us in his flesh. I mean, even now, sitting at the right hand of the Father with a host of heavenly angels around him, he has a body. And he bears on that glorified body the marks of his suffering for you and for me. He bears in his hands the nail holes that pierced him, in his feet and in his side the spear that pierced him. And these are trophies of his triumph that will not be taken from him. But they will be displayed as all time for as a testimony to his greatness. Hell will look upon the scars of Jesus and tremble. And heaven will look upon the scars of Jesus and shout for joy. So when you're discouraged. When the trial you're facing feels like it's taking longer than it should. Or maybe when you feel trapped and your depression and anxiety, have you looked to the Son who is slain yet standing and know that there is no greater expression of God's love for you than when you look into the face of His Son? The Christian life, it's one of looking. And the goal of the Christian life is to receive full sight of the one we are looking to. But the problem is the Bible says that our sin makes us blind. It prohibits us from seeing God in the fullness of his glory. That's why salvation is spoken of as the blind receiving their sight. Take the lines of the great hymn. I, was, I once was blind, but now I see. See what? See God. And, and when we allow our sin to control our lives... Our vision of God becomes blurred 
because Jesus directly links our ability to see God with our own purity. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so the fight to kill sin daily is a fight to see God. And until that glorious day when we are finally reconciled to God, our sin remains. And the struggle of the Christian life is to fight sin and grow in holiness so that our resolution of God may ever be increasing. To not be satisfied with mere glimpses of him, but to see his face. To see him more clearly than we did a year ago. To know him more deeply than we did when we first believed. To kill sin that gets in the way of seeing. I remember when I first got glasses for the first time back in the dark ages. I was a junior in college. And uh, I was sitting in my parents' church. I didn't think I had a problem. And I I was a little bored. So I grabbed my brother's glasses and I put them on because I always wanted glasses. And immediately I'm looking at the projector screen and like the letters sharpen up. (laughs) And I didn't even know that it was blurry. I took them off. I looked back again and it's sharpening. And so I went and got glasses. And I'll never forget when I first got glasses. It was week 11 of the regular season and the Chiefs were playing the Rams on Monday Night Football. That's how I remember it. And I got the glasses and it was fall and I'm looking at the trees and the leaves just like instantly are crisp. I never noticed Like, I could see the veins on the leaves. And I didn't even know what I was missing out of. I I didn't even know that what I wasn't aware of. And so, too, when God saves us, when he sanctifies us, we are given new spiritual eyes to see things with more clarity than we ever thought we could. To make better judgments and decisions than we did before we knew Christ. Sin has made our vision blurry, but God restores our sight in Christ. So kill sin. Not because someone merely tells you to or or because you want to appear religious. Kill sin because you want to see God. And there's a promise. As we see God in his son, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another until finally when he comes back we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is all our salvation now is promised but in that day we will actually possess in full what is promised to us so look to the son we not only look to him but we listen to him point number two listen to the son verses three through five If you look at verse 3, two great Old Testament characters appear beside Jesus in the vision and are speaking to him, Moses and Elijah. Now, we know from Luke's recount of this story that they're not just talking to him about the weather or anything else. They're talking to him about his upcoming death. And so think of the irony. Jesus is shining bright in his divine glory on the way to go be crucified by the very ones he created. But I wonder, why Moses and Elijah? Have you ever thought that when you read this? Why, Why them? I mean, it could have been anybody. Why not Adam, Abraham, David, Noah? Why these two men? 
And what can their appearances tell us about God's command to listen to the Son? Let's consider two reasons. Well, first, Moses and Elijah are symbolic for the law and the prophets. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, often called the law. These books are the foundation, not only for the Old Testament, but really for the whole scriptures. And Elijah, like Moses, was one of the mightiest prophets in the Old Testament. And he stands as a prophet. He stands for the prophets as a whole who testify of the coming Messiah. And so the law and the prophets, a shorthand way of saying all the Old Testament and all the promises of God are represented by Moses and Elijah who appear beside Christ to show that all the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in him. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. He tells the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And so the entire Old Testament, all of God's dealings with his people, is fulfilled in and completed by Christ. And to show this, Moses and Elijah, two of the greatest figures in the Old Testament, are merely servants and handmaidens to Jesus, who appears to fulfill what they were longing to see. Second, Moses and Elijah, if you remember, both in their lifetime saw God visibly in some form and requested to see him. Moses famously asked to see God's face in Exodus 33, and God says, you can't see my face and live, so I'll show you my back. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is in the cleft of the rock when the Lord passes by him in the whirlwind. Both men wanted to see God and now standing here, their wish was granted to a fuller degree than it was in their own lifetime. They, didn't, they don't just look upon God's back. They don't just hear his voice in the whisper of the wind. They look upon his face in Jesus Christ. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. Well, look at verse 4 with me. Peter now speaks up for the first time. And if we read the other gospel accounts, we know that Peter is so terrified in this moment, he doesn't even really know what he's saying. (laughs) He speaks to Jesus and he says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. As is often the case with Peter, he speaks boldly, but doesn't quite know what he's getting himself into. He's a bit overzealous. And he's an example to us of having religious zeal without knowledge can be a dangerous thing. However, he's right to note that it is good to see God. They were experiencing in that moment the highest good there is in the universe. And I think out of a desire to prolong this moment, uh, Peter offers to build three tents for them so that they might stay. And that he might dwell with them on this mountain for a while. Perhaps Peter misguided wants to not 
let Jesus go to Jerusalem. Because he's been saying he's going to be killed there. Maybe he wants him to stay. Maybe he's mistaken in saying, I'll build three tents for you by placing Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. Well, the text says, while he's still speaking, a bright cloud overshadows him and Peter, Peter, James, and John. And a voice comes from this cloud. The voice of God. He spoke the same words at Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he adds the command to Peter, listen to him. Stop speaking. Listen to the son. If we didn't have enough visual evidence that Jesus is God's son, now God the father audibly declares him to be so. And he gives him this command, listen to him. We listen to Jesus because he is the only one who has the words of eternal life. His authority to teach us comes from the authority of his own person. He does not appeal to another. Because the law and the prophets foreshadow him, he is worthy to be listened to. Because he created the earth and the heavens, and by him all things exist, he is worthy to be listened to. Because he opened the way to heaven by the agonies of his cross and prepares for us the steps into his kingdom, he is worthy to be listened to. So many voices compete for our attention today. The world shouts commands at us, telling us what is right and wrong or what is hateful or loving. Even our own sinful hearts try to displace and redefine God's right to tell us what is holy and what is not. But amidst a thousand voices shouting at us, only one is just and true. Only one is gentle and lowly in heart and promises that those who come to him and learn from him will find rest for their souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you want rest for your souls? Do you want flourishing in your life? Do you want to see God? Then listen to the Son. It's not legalism to strive with all your efforts in the Spirit to obey God's commands. He delights in your obedience. And He is, has equipped us to walk in the light as He is in the light. Our lives then, as Christians are a living testimony to our belief in Jesus. And that's why the Christian life seems so strange to outsiders. Because we ought to live in a way that honors the worthiness of our high calling in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. So is your life characterized by listening to the Son? Does your life look different than the world because you follow Jesus and listen to his voice? Is his voice just one among many or is it the voice that you listen to for guidance? 
Many look to Jesus, but they don't listen to him. Many claim the name of Christ, but don't heed his words. Look to Jesus and listen to him. Because in doing so, you will find rivers of living water for your soul. The command to listen to the Son also teaches us that Jesus and only Jesus is the supreme teacher of his church. Here locally and wherever believers gather faithfully in his name. Not the Pope. Not a senior pastor of a big megachurch. Not any councils of men. But only Jesus is the supreme teacher and head of the church. He is the chief shepherd, the great pastor who cares for our souls. And I think this is especially a sweet assurance for us here at Warnell Road Baptist Church as we begin this new season of appointing a lead pastor to know that Jesus is the supreme overseer of our church. We have four, and Lord willing, five elders soon Godly elders who faithfully labor on our behalf as under-shepherds to this great chief shepherd. But even they draw their strength and their wisdom and their counsel and their preaching from the great elder who purchased the church with his own blood and has not left us as orphans. Isn't that a sweet comfort to us? It's a sign of God's blessing and favor to us that we have pastors who week in and week out teach and model for us in their own lives what it means to listen to the Son. Don't take it for granted. I mean, many churches struggle underneath pastors who don't listen to the Son. And our church's own checkered 100-year history will show you that. That it's not guaranteed every pastor will faithfully speak the words of God. A good pastor does not speak his own opinions, but he speaks what God has commanded in the scriptures. And so in your life, if you ever find yourself at a church where that's not the case, find a new church that preaches the Bible and models the faithfulness of the chief shepherd in their own ministry. I remember one time I was at Starbucks, uh, and this like guy walks in. He's kind of older, and he looks like Indiana Jones, and he's talking really loud to the workers, so I know it's going to be a problem. And so I'm sitting there with my books, and he sits by me, and he like comes over, and he looks at my books, and he kind of like gets real close and points at one of them, and he goes, ooh, I like that book. <laughs> so I was like, okay, here we go. So he sits down next to me, and uh, we begin talking. And he begins telling me how um, the Gospels are, are historical fiction, and Jesus is not divine, and just kind of all these, you know, uh, interesting things. I was more interested to find out he had been a pastor for 20 years in a, a little bit left-leaning denomination in South Dakota. And he was telling me, we, we got on the subject of preaching, and he goes, you know, I've found that according to research— People can really only take about 10 minutes of preaching because then they check out and, you know, they don't really want to be there. And so I asked him, I was like, well, when you preach, like, do you pick a scripture text and then, you know, preach it for 10 minutes? And he said, no, no, I I, kind of just tell them what I think they need. And I told him, well, if you were only preaching your opinions for 10 minutes, that's about all I'd want. 
But if you're preaching the scriptures, I want 40 minutes. I want 30 minutes. I want something more substantial. So be grateful that you have pastors who listen to the sun and don't preach for 10 minutes. If we listen to ourselves or we listen to the wrong voices, we will meet hardship and heartache in this life. But Jesus has promised us that his sheep will hear his voice. And they will know his voice. And they will recognize his voice against all counterfeits. He gives us the words of eternal life. So listen to him. We ought to look to Jesus. We ought to listen to Jesus. And lastly, we ought to lean on Jesus. Verses 6 and 8. Look at verse 6 for a moment with me. When the disciples heard this, being the Father's voice, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It's interesting that whenever humans meet God or a heavenly figure in the Bible, they fall down terrified on their faces because they are immediately aware of their unworthiness and sinfulness in the presence of such holiness. It says the divine cloud overshadowed the disciples. And human weakness in this life is not strong enough to bear the sight of such glory. And that's why the disciples are prostrate on the ground, faces down. But in this text... In the touch and the words of Jesus to rise and have no fear, we see the comfort and the welcome of Jesus. In fact, the only one who can calm the nerves of sinners in the sight of a holy God. Those that are comforted by Jesus see no one but Jesus, nor do they rejoice or take comfort in any but him. Jesus' divine and, and resurrected glory, along with the Father's voice, frightened the disciples. But Jesus here, in order to relieve their fears, like reverses back into his unglorified heavenly future state how the disciples saw him before, just as a regular man. And he does so to relieve them of their fears. The, the, the transfiguration is so interesting because it, it shows us that Jesus conceals his divine glory for a time so that he might walk among the sons of men. But hear me clearly, he, he does not give up any divine attributes during this time. But in order to show his kindness and his care for us, he accommodates himself to our, our lowly state And he appears to us in a way that we can comprehend him and be comforted by him. It would do us no good if the fullness of the divine essence showed up in front of our faces because we would be consumed. But God shows his grace in that Christ condescends to us as a man to speak with us face to face. I have a three-month-old daughter. I think she's about to be four months and when I speak to her, I accommodate myself to her. It, it would do, if she's screaming, 
it would do no good for me to lot like reason with her and speak in complex sentences and use therefores and thus. It, I accommodate myself to her in baby talk, in coos, in, in touches, in getting right up in her face and smiling. And likewise, God does the same to us. He, he comes down to us in a humble state in his son that we might clearly understand him and come to know that our only comfort is found in him. So Jesus comes to save us for this very purpose that we might lean on him. That in spite of all the wrong we have done and all the ways we have offended our holy God, we might take comfort in his presence, knowing that all our sins were laid upon Christ. That God the Father pardons us in the Son. When we look upon Christ, when we listen to him, when we lean upon him, all the sins that pester us and the guilt that accompanies us will vanish away in the sight of our Savior. And this text shows us that none but Christ can raise us up from our dejections and silence our fears. The power of the gospel is not that we are enough, but that Christ is enough. And in him, we have a strong savior who can lift us out of all our despairs. So look to him, listen to him, lean on him. Friends, what are you living for? What sustains you in your trials? The goal of the Christian life is to one day see the face of God in eternal blessedness and live with him forever. Is that what you're striving towards? Does that hope seem abstract to you? Because it's not. It's as real as this building. It's as real as my voice that you're hearing. It's as real as this pulpit. It's not abstract. But he will one day come again for us. And when he does, the dead will rise in Christ. We shall see him, not even as the disciples saw him here in the transfiguration. We, see, we shall see him even more true and more full because we have been made pure in his son. Are you ready for that day? And do you want to see God? Because nothing on earth compares to what that day will be. I remember being like 16 and I, I was like, if you can only wait to come back until after I get to drive by myself with my license. You know, we all kind of have those things. And it just, and it's cute, but it shows our sinfulness that we would think something on earth would be far greater than the son of God descending to us with a smile on his face and trumpets blasting all around him. Do you want to see God? Someone once said to the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, they said, you know, you cannot see God's face and live. And I love his reply. He said, let me see God's face and die. And I will be glad enough to die a hundred deaths if I may but see Christ. Do we long to see him with that kind of fervor and urgency? And will that be enough for us? Will it make all our suffering worth it? Surely it will. 
Hear the witness of Scripture. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I assure you by the authority of the word of God that on the day you behold the unveiled face of Christ, you will look back on all your suffering and say it was worth every trial. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want to see you. We want to hear you speak. We want to lean on you for strength. Don't let us go on in our own strength and stumble unless we need that to come to you. But Lord, come to us and show us your goodness and let every earthly care, every earthly fear and every earthly riches fade in the light of your son. Show us that the treasure we find hidden in the field is worth selling all our possessions for. Show us that you are greater than anything we could even imagine. Lord, you are greater than even heaven itself. And Lord, sustain us with this promise that we will see your face. Help us to kill our sin in the power of the Spirit and obey your Son. We ask this to God the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.